If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It's uh, podcast time. And normally, John and I are be- regard ourselves as fairly upbeat characters, fairly <clears throat> optimistic people, <clears throat> people who look at the world and say, Well, you know what? I'm all right, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Ed? I'm good. I'm good, thanks. <laughs> I'm all right. You can just walk off. <laughs> no, but this week we're getting a little bit doom. We're a bit doomy. Last Tuesday with Javier was a bit doomy on the diesel. Yes, he was great. And yeah. today but... we're going to also talk about the potential. See, I don't think people are taking this energy thing serious enough. So what's very odd is if you look at the career of the vast, vast majority of people who are commenting and who are doing this, that, and the other in the world, all of us were brought up in a period of energy certainty, not energy uncertainty. Yes. All of us were brought up in a period where energy was assumed to be affordable, energy was assumed to be widely available, and it was never assumed to have any bottlenecks or fears that we could always always support ourselves. Now, what happens is if you subsidize energy over the years relative to everything else, right, you begin to stop thinking about farming. You say, ah, farming, yeah, the farmers will do their stuff mm. and the oil tankers will arrive and there'll be petrol at the pumps. Oh, I'll flick the switch and the lights will come on. Everything will come on. And I don't have to mm. worry about that. And if you think about for the vast, vast, vast majority of human existence, the two major concerns of people were energy and food, right? Yes. So all of our, our our DNA should be, we are the first generation of humans not to worry about energy, yeah. right? Even our parents worried about energy and their parents worried about energy. And it's the further back you go, the more no energy meant you were dying. Yes. No food meant you were dying. So we're this first really causative generation. And so you'll see in all the discussions, even the last, let's say, four or five years, all the discussion about economics like tech, Tech this, tech that, tech the other thing. Mm. You know, tech is going to change the world. Well, yes, but your assumption is... But if you can't charge your phone... If you can't charge your phone, your <laughs> assumption is energy is yeah. always going to be free and available. And this, ironically, is what the environmental movement has been forecasting for years, that we will reach an energy crunch. The issue here is the energy crunch we're reaching has got very little to do with the environmental movement and everything to do with the fact that over the last 10 or 20 years, we just assumed away yeah. fossil fuels. Yeah. So that'll be fine. So 
This week, we are going all a bit doom and gloomy on energy and the implication. That sounds bizarre to discuss the notion of a food shortage when in actual fact the last years, particularly in most part of the world, have been characterised by a food abundance. Do you remember the old days we used to have, you know, a butter mountain and a wine lake and a milk lake? Yeah, too much of the stuff. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. and that all came from the common agricultural policy, Mm. which subsidised farmers to overproduce. So it all actually comes, ironically, the end of the Second World War, Germany starved. Do you know that? Yeah. They starved, right? And the Germans said at the beginning, the foundational document of the EU was the thing called the coal and steel arrangement. 1957, Rome, John. Go right? on, go on, but explain. from that comes, because basically the Europeans said, well, we need to be actually self-sufficient in coal and steel, right? Then beyond that came the EEC, and the foundational idea of the EEC was agricultural surpluses. Mm. That's why the CAP was so big, and that's why Ireland... It was such a no-brainer for Ireland to join the European Union because they paid our farmers much more than they ever got paid. Yeah. The idea is we paid farmers to overproduce. But the reason we could pay farmers to overproduce was a thing called the Green Revolution, right? So up until the late 1960s, there was a very, very influential school of thought which said that the world is going to starve. Population time bomb. You might remember wow. this. Like yes. Paul Ehrlich was an yeah, American yeah. professor, right? And that... And then, of course, you had this thing called the Green Revolution. And the Green Revolution was largely a petrochemical fertilizer boom, which profoundly increased yields all around the world. But the base content was petrol, Mm, right? Yeah. So what we had was we, petrol and farming became intermeshed, right? And now we have a situation where the price of energy the price of petrol, the price of diesel, and the price of food move together, right? And we're now facing this Malthusian moment, maybe, John. Now, Malthus, right? Malthus. Malthus was Thomas Malthus, an Anglican priest and a big brainy fella from the late... 18th century, early 19th yes. century. Yes, I remember this from school, actually. But And Malthus wrote this extraordinary uh, paper about how countries and societies would reach Malthusian moments where the human population just got so big and much, much bigger than the ability to feed ourselves and we would the world would be characterised by famines. Yeah. And what he, then, he said then after that, so most people stop at that, but what he then said was that these famines will cause humans to change their behaviour. He called them special checks. And that change in behaviour will force humans to adapt to this new famine-stricken world, Right. But the change in behaviour he called natural selection. Ah. Right? And Darwin, in 1836, is on the Beagle, sailing around, yeah. right? <laughs> and Darwin comes home, and Darwin was a great note-taker, right? Yeah. And he was looking at these things, and he could figure out there was something going on called evolution, but he couldn't understand the process. And then he read Malthus, yeah. and he fixated on this idea of natural selection. So what Malthus was saying was that humans whether they're in cities or in the countryside, will adapt their behavior to make them much more survivable in an age of famines, right? Right. And actually, that's what happened here in Ireland. So we had the famine. What did Irish people do after this? We stopped having children. We actually changed our behavior. Irish people stopped getting married, right? Our population collapsed after the famine. Yes, as a result of the famine, 
but also as a Malthusian response, like natural selection yeah. that we learned. And Irish people stopped having kids. So it, very fascinating stuff. But anyway, yeah. Darwin is sitting there in <laughs> Deal in Kent, right? yes. which is where he was, right? And he's really pissed off because he lost all his money on the railway shares. You know that? Darwin <laughs> Darwin was like Newton. He was great at biology and, yeah. and physics. was shy useless, of money. Useless yeah, yeah. at that. Yeah, Terrible. Yeah. And he picks upon natural selection. So interestingly, the basis of modern biology stems from economic observations, right? Right. So Darwin borrows from Malthus because Malthus talks about this energy stroke food ceiling that the world will reach, right? For so long, Malthus has been laughed at because we didn't run out of food. The only country that did, we were the Malthusian experiment. Ireland was the great example, mm. right, of the Malthusian catastrophe. The rest of the world said, no, that doesn't happen, blah, 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 blah. Now, right now, we're back to a Malthusian moment, maybe, where the world's population, which has been weaned and schooled on the abundance of food due to the cheapness and availability of energy, may well be coming to a moment. And that's what we're going to discuss in our doom-laden podcast. Happy today. days, huh? And not only that, we're going to go and talk to a chicken. Go on, explain that. You better right, explain there that There is one. a fantastic new American company, well, over the last year, called Doomberg, which is like iceberg, but for doom. So yeah. all the doomy bits is under the bit. The tip of the iceberg you see, you don't see the big picture. They are an anonymous information center. Fascinating. Really interesting stuff they're writing about. And we have Mr. Doomberg in a sec on the line for the States. But the problem is because they're anonymous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He appears as a chicken on my Zoom. <laughs> so let's go and let's talk to a chicken about Malthusian moments, famines, <laughs> energy, and the crisis we are in. Let's go to the States. Now, this week, I came across a fascinating, fascinating service from the US called Doomberg. Now, one thing that really intrigued me was this was, it seemed to me, really good insider analysis of various industries. The piece I, re I read was about farming. But then I dug a little bit more, and then it transpires that Doonberg is an anonymous consulting service that consults to very serious players in the US, and I presume increasingly in Europe, about huge trends in economics, in politics, in energy, all the stuff that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And I am now delighted to have Doonberg on the line from the States. But I'm looking at, not a person, but as at a chicken avatar. I swear to Jesus, I'm looking at a chicken here, right? <laughs> Mr. Doomberg, how are you? David, I'm doing wonderful. Great to be on your show. And uh, in preparation for this show, listen to a bunch of your podcasts, really enjoyable stuff. And congratulations on your success. And as we were chatting before we came on, any excuse to have a Guinness for breakfast is a good one. <laughs> well, listen, listen, you don't need us to. You don't need to encourage us to. Anyway, so just very briefly, tell me about Doomberg, who I am talking to, what's the genesis of the company, explain the anonymity, and then I want to talk to you about a piece you wrote this week about agriculture. So let's ex explain this to me, this phenomenon. Doomberg is the anonymous publishing arm of, of a bespoke consulting firm. So in our real lives, uh, we exist as real people. We're a small team. You could sort of think of us as a think tank. Our clients usually hire us to analyze complex problems and give them different ways to think about them, 
or to recognize patterns uh, ahead of time. And um, that that's a fine business and we're, we're sort of happy to be in it. The some elements of the work are aligned with our passion. And then uh, when COVID hit, we, we like many small businesses, lost a huge chunk of, of our revenue. Uh, we were sort of concentrated uh, customers. And uh, when COVID hit, most, many public companies just turned off the consulting taps, which is totally understandable. And so we were forced to reinvent ourselves like, like many entrepreneurs. And, and we did. We, um, we, we created a new line of business consulting with content creators and specifically content creators who sell their content onto Wall Street. And that worked very well. Uh, we had a lot of success. And some of our clients, one in particular, had heavily encouraged us to start our own content creation business, uh, which 11 months ago we did. And the name is Doomberg. As you mentioned, we write articles roughly about twice a week on doomberg.substack.com. And we are pretty unique in the sense that we write content for Wall Street, but we come from heavy industry. And we have uh, decades of experience on our team. And we leverage that experience with our own financial knowledge and then the vast network of sources that you can that you can pull from by creating, a, so for example, our large Twitter account. And so it's pretty rare for people with direct industry experience to be writing openly and freely about what they're seeing in the market in real time for the broader audience. And that's the unique angle that we've tried to build. And then the anonymity piece, it's predominantly about branding. You know, the green chicken is unique. You just said yourself, like you're looking at a green chicken and it was funny. It's memorable. The, the, the and things and, I do for this podcast. And now, <laughs> listener, listeners, listener, now that I have you here, the things I do for you, I am up yeah. in the middle of the night talking to a green chicken in America, right? So keep going. Yes. <laughs> and one of the first rules of marketing is you, is you can't be remembered if you don't stand out. And uh, the green chicken is unique. And then once you build an audience under an anonymous banner like we have, there's value in the mystique and there's value in the mystery. And, sure, no, um, absolutely. And, and so we're just keeping it that way. It's mostly for fun, to be honest with you. I, we joked on another podcast. It's not like we're writing these things from prison. We just decided that, uh, you know, we wanted to be anonymous. And then the last reason to be anonymous is um, I might be the voice of Doomberg when we appear on podcasts, but we're a team, very close, tight-knit team. And it wouldn't feel right for one person to be the public face of Doomberg. Sure, no, I get that. Fact, I get that. I'm just the outlet for the combined and, and co-equal creativity of, of a very high-profile team that I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of. Well, I've got my big bird outfit here, John, uh, from Sesame Street in the 70s. And the next time we do a live podcast, I'm just going to arrive as a big chicken. Absolutely. That I'm going to suit you down to the ground, Mike. To the ground. Okay, let's go, Mr. Doomberg. I read this piece quite chilling about the future, the immediate future of agriculture. I thought, this is interesting. I haven't heard this before. Explain to me your view of agriculture, food, in peril in the next few quarters of next year. Explain so to me what you're thinking. It's a fascinating piece, and, and you will appreciate this. Um, the response to that piece ha has been bifurcated into two pools of people. One pool is Americans, and the other pool is the rest of the world. And um, when we published this piece, <laughs> the response from farmers outside of the U.S. was unanimous, grateful. Thank you for writing it. We are experiencing all these challenges. And the response from people within the U.S. was, uh, we're not going to have food shortages in the U.S. That completely sort of missed the point of the piece. So in the piece, we leveraged our American farming sources to systematically walk through the key inputs into global farming and why their price was so high and why we anticipated that this might continue into the future. And then we, we said, at these prices, global farmers, farmers, you know, already on the brink are going to have an incredibly tough time executing a harvest 
for profit with these conditions, which means they're going to use less of the inputs we described, which means yields are going to come down, which means food shortages are going to happen. And we, we are, we called a global famine. This is probably the 10th piece in a series uh, where we've been, we've been flagging this at its core. The real issue is we're in the middle of an energy crisis and energy is life. Absolutely. And energy is literally life. And so in the piece itself, we started with fertilizer, which is basically a product of natural gas. And your European listeners will know that natural gas is in crisis. We argue because you know natural gas is in crisis because of uh, European policy mistakes and, and environmental blunders. Energy blunders because of a poorly thought out uh, environmental strategy is, I guess, the best way to say. But Europeans, uh, Europeans, I'll stop there. Europeans would say we're in a sort of a, an energy crisis because of of Ukraine. But I want to tease out yes. your view, right? Because your yeah. view is. Quite, it seems an American, slightly more libertarian view, particularly when it comes to the the environment, which we we tend to be much more sensitive towards. But let's tease it out as we go on. Sure. So I'll I'll finish this piece, and then we could circle to that. Uh, so fertilizers gone to the moon. Diesel is in short supply for reasons we can explain. Herbicides. The number one herbicide in the world is a very controversial molecule called glyphosate. And if you if you study the molecular structure of glyphosate, it is nothing more than a a sophisticated version of a fertilizer. And so it too is in short supply, which is causing a knock-on effect for all other herbicides. Machinery, you know, the chip shortage that has crushed the auto industry has also crushed the farming machinery industry. And we tell the story of a, a farmer in Iowa who, um, penny holding up a dollar, as they would say, uh, for the lack of a $40 emissions chip, his quarter million dollar tractor is inoperable. Labor shortage. So in the US in particular, there's a uh, historic divergence between the number of job openings and the number of unemployed people seeking work. You know, and then finally, we talked about um, propane, which we are, we're sort of predicting might be a, a future crisis. Uh, the U.S. is exiting the winter with the with the lowest inventories of propane in, in as far back as Bloomberg will tell us. And uh, propane is critical to the drying of grains post-harvest and, and the ability to store them. And so when you put all that together, U.S. farmers will be fine. Uh, we will pay the clearing price. Lower income people will be given stimulus which only further exacerbates the exportation of this inflation that we think is going to crush international farmers. And uh, we're already seeing signs of that in countries that are directly impacted by Ukraine, but we believe this, this contagion will spread. So what, what you're saying is that lower income farmers all around the world, so America and Europe, we've got the common agricultural policy here. You have your own federal policies for agriculture. So we have the possibility of paying the higher prices, of kicking into the future the cost of all that we can borrow, et cetera. But what you're saying is that the rest of the world, because I'm really conscious of the fact that the Arab Spring came largely not as a result of some internal political combustion, which happened in Tunisia and then spread to Libya, then spread to Egypt, then spread to Syria, but actual fact came coincident with a massive increase in food prices. And that you're saying that in the rest of the developing world, take out Australia, take out ourselves, take out yourselves, these increases in inputs are going to cause huge problems with harvesting. And it's harvesting, which is like next September, that we really feel all this stuff. Correct. And so something you said there is very critical, and we've written this in several pieces. On the path from abundance to starvation is riot. And there's a, a very short time period between when grocery store shelves are empty and revolutions occur. And so you are precisely correct. The Arab Spring was a food crisis. The Arab Spring uh, manifested from food crisis. And 
food crises are the genesis of countless revolutions. Which is which is why Marie Antoinette didn't say Precisely. didn't yeah. say let them go out and party. She said let them eat cake because there was Correct. actually a bread shortage. Correct. And and we finished this piece to, to your point. You know, we, we opened the piece with a quote from um, Dwight D. Eisenhower, which is a, a really a, a brilliant quote. And the quote was, farming looks mighty easy when your plow is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from the cornfield. Any, um, any Irish farmer listening to this will tell you all about that. Farming is yes. hard. Of course it's hard and it's critical. And we've forgotten about it because we can afford to pay it because we've financialized our economy. So we, we end the piece by saying, as Eisenhower aptly identifies in our opening quote, distance has an anesthetizing effect on the observer of any occurrence. And we say, one wonders how many people will starve before our politicians get serious. And then we say, the populations most at risk of falling off the edge are half a world away. And we worry that the number of such people that have to starve is uncomfortably high before we are jolted into action. And um, the purpose of the piece is to jolt that action. It's not to be alarmist. We've been flagging this for the, the entire length of Doomberg. The energy crisis is upon us, is real. And there is a proper physics-based approach to the path out, or there's the approach that we're on now, which is going to run full steam into the hard brick wall of physics. And we would hope that we would choose the proper path, but clearly not enough pain has been suffered by uh, not enough people. Eventually we'll have to. And that's the frustrating part. So explain to me those two paths. So there is a, if we begin with the assumption that carbon emissions are bad and we should orient our society around minimizing the number of carbon emissions that simultaneously allows us to create a sufficiently high standard of living for as many people as possible, then there is a, a prudent way to go about it and there is an imprudent way to go about it. And so we've laid out in several pieces our energy strategy. And uh, one of them is called, it's time to get a serious proposal on US energy, for example, uh, a follow-up piece to a, a piece we wrote in February called, it's time to get serious about energy. So you cannot, it's, if you, you have to think about energy in the same way you would think about money and financing a large capital project, okay? When you build a factory, you spend a lot of money up front and you depreciate that over time and you have a payback period. Yeah. You can calculate it. Yeah, it's the same thing with energy. So if we're going to build a solar array, it takes several years for the energy you invest up front to be reharvested by that solar array. And uh, it turns out it's a very political number, of course, as industry advocates like to make that number low and fossil fuel advocates like to make that number high. But broadly speaking, the best estimates are the energy payback on a solar array is uh, something on the order of four to five years. Okay. It, it depends if you have batteries and then that also you know goes into the denominator, but you have to spend a lot of energy. In fact, we've written about this. Uh, a polysilicon plant takes sand and makes a polysilicon, which can then gets sliced into wafers and, and goes into your solar array. That's incredibly energy intense. Like there's the reason why sand is so abundant is because it's a thermodynamic sink. And so you have to put in an enormous amount of energy to convert sand into a solar cell. And that energy has to come from somewhere. And today, 85% of our energy, full stop, comes from fossil fuels. And so if you're going to replace half of our energy, you have to spend four to five times that amount of energy up front to do it. We don't have that energy today. Energy is life. You were seeing early on what happens when you starve people of energy, you literally starve them of life. And what is the price elasticity of demand for life and who can afford to pay it? Well, it's precisely the wealthy countries who can, and they will set the market clearing price. And the, the food crisis, the farming crisis that we're predicting is nothing more than the, the first echo of the energy crisis that we experienced last year in Europe. 
And we could tie all this together because we spent decades in industry and we know how these flows work. We have a molecular map of the economy. And it's all very predictable. Just take what happened in, in Europe. Okay. So for political reasons, fossil fuels have been deemed to be bad. But the the craziest part of the European energy strategy is, is the denuclearization of the German economy. That is just literally insane. Um, so our strategy would be roll out nuclear concurrent with renewables, focus on developing natural gas to replace coal, proliferate plug-in hybrid electric vehicles instead of full BEVs because the battery materials and the metals and the minerals are in short supply. And we have to optimize the, the gallons of fuel abated per pound of battery and a full battery electric vehicle does a poor job of that and so on. So there, there are sensible ways to do it. But to turn off your nuclear power plants, destabilize your base load power while simultaneously stopping the development of, of natural gas and then exporting your reliance for that natural gas to somebody who doesn't like us. Vladimir Putin. So Mr. Putin. We, Mr. Putin. Yeah. We wrote a piece called Putin's Fools Rush In uh, all the way back, I think it was in September, October. It's very clear that he would not have invaded Ukraine had we not handed him the keys to our economy. He has all the leverage, as we're about to find out, as he insists that people who are purchasing his natural gas pay for it in rubles. And what's our alternative? He seems to have the leverage. And by the way, we're no fans of Mr. Putin. We're proud Americans. Uh, we're patriotic Americans. Uh, we would prefer it if the people who don't like us had less power over us. That's uh, a very sensible thing. But in the end, we have denuclearized the European grid. We have stunted the development of natural gas. We have exported our reliance of energy reliance to, to Putin. And now here we are. We're in war and we're at the cusp of a, of a famine, a mass starvation event. And if we, if we had thought about these policies with a physics-based mindset instead of a political mindset, we could have avoided this. Most people ignore the denominator in the equation, which is the CO2 emissions divided by the standard of living you're giving to people. And you can't. People won't tolerate it. And in fact, sure. the biggest no, risk, absolutely. The, the biggest risk to the uh, sort of most radical environmental movement, the people that are pressing so hard for complete dislocation from fossil fuels as quickly as possible, is their attempt to do so will fail so spectacularly that they will be so discredited that they will lose power for generation, political power for generation. And then the people who will replace them will do the opposite, of course, and they will they will snap back to not concerning themselves with CO2 emissions whatsoever. And so the path function matters, David. Like you, no, absolutely. This is no, no, very I, serious I, no, things. No, no, yeah. I think, I think the, the, you know, what, what you're talking about is it's not usually binary choices, but sometimes politics leads to binary choices, that you either get one or you get the other. And the intervening yeah. period are the lost years. And the lost years are where the chaos happens and where the extremism happens and where the mistakes happen, the accidents happen. And as you said, where, 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 where lives matter. Yeah. And um, as we said, like uh, the path from abundance to starvation uh, on that path includes riot. And, you know, we're, we're still not serious because we are still in the U.S., for example, talking about, well, for example, we, we, we signed this deal with Europe to send a flotilla of liquefied natural gas over to help abate. Yeah, by the way, we're um, waiting for it. Here's the challenge, David. The facilities needed to chill natural gas to make it a liquid and to load it on these giant cargoes, they're running full tilt already. And they cost billions of dollars to construct and years to permit. And these things just can't turn on overnight. And in the US still, we have a pipeline in the US, Mountain Valley Pass, we wrote about this in another piece, that is 95% complete, has been permitted since 2018, 
is missing like one small stretch that happens to pass through a, a federal, you know, national forest, kind of like a, a heavier regulated area. And despite the fact that it had been permitted since 2018 and billions have been spent on its construction, there are these law firms in the U.S. that specialize in uh, eco nuisance lawsuits, and they have you know eco nuisance their- lawsuits. Yes, uh, this is a, a very, but nobody. I, maybe I just invented that term while talking to you, but there are. Well, listen, uh, I'm talking to a chicken. You can invent anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, an eco-nuisance lawsuit is when environmentalists who are opposed to the development of all new energy sources, regardless of the trade-offs involved, find little issues in the law that can be litigated, and then they find the right judge. You know, the U.S. legal system is a total mess, and judges are very political, and, and the appointment of such judges... Oh, no, don't worry. We're looking to your Supreme Court from here, and we're saying that's a total yeah, mess. Very, very clear very, to us. Very political. And so one judge somewhere or a panel of three judges somewhere can arbitrarily intervene and and stop the construction of critical energy infrastructure like this pipeline. That the lack of this pipeline limits the offtake capacity of the largest uh, natural gas discoveries in the world, Appalachia. And um, if you can't move it, it's stuck. And so like in the U.S., the regional price disparities of natural gas are are pretty interesting because it, it all really comes down to pipelines. And here we are promising to save Europe, and we can't even get a pipeline built that's 95% done and has been permitted since 2018. You tell me, David, how are we going to come to your rescue in this environment? We're not, because we're on serious still. The president could work with Congress to pass a law to to streamline the development of, of natural gas, which is the cleanest of the fossil fuels. Let's be clear. You'd much rather generate electricity from natural gas than coal, for example. Yeah, um, no, I get that. I get that. And then we are promising to Europe that we will bail them out of their dependence on Putin, while at the same time, uh, we're doing nothing about these eco-nuisance losses. Well, I think on that on that note, uh, John and I are now putting on two jumpers uh, and a cardigan, and we're getting used, we're going to get used to the, the new nuclear winter, which is coming up here. No, but fascinating stuff. Mr. Mr. I can't wait till you take that chicken uniform out of you so when I can actually see you in the flesh. Yes. But uh, no, Doomberg, it was very, really interesting, a little bit chilling both physically and psychologically, uh, but fascinating stuff. So thank you very much for talking to us. Anytime, David, and uh, love your stuff. And, and it's been real, real pleasure. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Mac, Tuesday was a doom and gloom about the diesel. And today is about the farming. About the farming. And the energy in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, John, these are fascinating moments where my sense is that people are not realizing what exactly is going on. Mm. Like it's just a lot of, it's like a phony war, you know, but what's going on is as, as, as the chicken said, yeah, well, the Americans it, can't protect us. Well, it's all well and good, but I'm beginning to realize now it's all well and good to slap on the sanctions and to avoid that hot world war three. Yeah. But actually at the end of the day, this could even have even greater impact on our day-to-day life. Well, this this is this is, you know, what the, the French call the match between England and France, le crunch, right? Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, this yeah. is the crunch. This is the moment the front rows go down and the heads collide. And this is when it gets real. Do you know what I mean? Like all that sort of like it's like it's it's like everything. If you if you ever ask sports people about playing at the very highest level, yeah, you know, if, if it's football or whatever it happens to be, or GAA, they say it's that moment where Mike Tyson said everybody is a plan until they get a punch in the face. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the punch in the face is, now it's real. Yeah. And what, what we were just saying there is they're, they're saying, look, it's real now. But what I thought was really interesting, what he was saying, and actually the most upbeat thing that he was saying, actually, in all of that, was that what is required now is a more sensible and pragmatic approach. Yeah. Like when you think... And look, uncomfortable in a, in a way as well, because it's kind of awkward. Absolutely, absolutely. And the way we've been talking you know, on and off over the last while about the green transition and, you know, renewables and all the rest. Bicycles, all that good stuff. That's all well and good. But right now, right now... You need fossil fuels as well. We do. And we need a blend. When you're talking about, as the chicken said, about, you know... Mr. Mr. Doomberg. (laughs) Mr. Doomberg was saying about the shutting down of the, the nuclear power stations in Germany is a crazy thing to do right now. And you're basically, and he says, as you, and you handed Putin on a plate. Exactly. The keys to your energy sector. Yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, have that. Thank you very much. Well, I mean, that's, you know, it's uncomfortable. It's awkward. It shatters one's illusions. But I suppose at the end of the day, John, it's the truth. And the truth is always uncomfortable. While I have you there, listen, I just want to say thank you so much to all our Patreons who really supported myself and John throughout the last nearly three years. Man. Three years, wow. Oh, it's a long time. I thought it only started last week. It's such a good crack though, isn't it? It is, it is, it is. It is. It's, like, it's like having the dream gig. You know? <laughs> thank you very, very much. And if you do want to support us on Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. You get ad-free You get courses, you get chats, you can ask me questions, all sorts of stuff. And you really become part of the gang. So that's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. And again, thank you very much. (laughs) 